I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, you are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On the show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. This session from the 2010 Third Coast Conference is about one of the final and most important stages of making an audio story. Your narration. Bad tracking can take your lush narrative peaks and valleys and turn them into a flat, emotionless desert. In order to pull your script off the page, you need to be thinking about how the narration should sound, what tone you need to take, and look at what particular words you need to emphasise. Here you can listen while Emily Botine leads the way as producers track their stories with her in real time. Here is The Script Disappears. Thanks. I um, am Emily and I am from Brooklyn. And actually, let me just reverse that. Uh, our coaches today will be Jane Feltus and Dean Olsher. Uh, Julie Snyder is here from This American Life. Jane's going to be the coach and Julie will offer chime in. Uh, this is a session about tracking. And it sounds pretty simple, you know, laying da- down your narration after you're done with a piece. And in a way, it is simple. That is what you're doing. Um, but I thought it might be worth spending a little more time on it, in part because you spent so much time on your piece. You've spent so much time collecting your tape, thinking about the story structure, thinking about the writing, and then often you just run into the studio and record when, in fact, the way you speak, uh, the words you say, and how you speak it are really what is going to pull the listener in. Um, so that's what this session is all about. And we're going to be doing it by actually walk, watching, tracking, and action. Uh, we have three reporter producers who are going to be presenting, going to be recording some of their uh, pieces under the coaching of Dean and Jane. Um, some of you may wonder why I am presenting the session, if you know me at all, because I never track pieces. I like less than five pieces I've tracked, in part because I think it is so hard. Uh, I don't think I've found a voice that fits me. I but I do spend a lot of time tracking other people, uh, and sometimes I think I do it well, and sometimes I think well, that person didn't sound good at all. One of the things that's so good about our coaches today, Dean and Jane, is they're both producers as well as reporters. So they know the situation you're in, they feel your pain. Um, So to start, I want to play about two minutes of tape, just uh, from 
some tops, the very starts of pieces, to sort of prime our ears uh, to thinking about narrative styles. Uh, and you know, when I selected these, I immediately thought of lots of others I could have selected. So these are just sort of a random few. It's 7 a.m. in Goree, Texas, and if you don't know it's time to get up, the roosters do. If you're not from Texas and you imagine what it's like, this is the Texas you think of. Horses, cattle, rolling grassland that finally meets an endless blue sky at the far horizon. Here are people who step into a stirrup with the same ease that you press your keyless remote and climb into the car. Out here, people are scared. The U.S. military and the private security contractors working in Iraq, who are often ex-military themselves, usually get along, but not always. I was driving around Baghdad International Airport on a Tuesday afternoon with Dave Shu, a six-foot-four former middle school social studies teacher, former army sergeant, current employee of Custer Battles, when he pulled up next to two guys jogging in gray t-shirts that said Army. How's your singing voice today, Mom? I'm going to try it a little. You're going to try to and, sing a little and bit? And see what, what'll happen. We'll see. I don't know. You don't, don't know. So, do you know Do you know what day it is today? Oh, here we go. <laughs> do, you, do you know what month it is? Do you, I'm afraid I don't. You don't know? It's okay. No. Do you know where you are? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> My mom's name is Jeanette Taubin. Yes, yes. When she was younger, she was a professional opera singer. Yeah. Right. Um, she studied at the Manus School of Music, yeah. and she won awards. She won the mm -hmm. Arthur Godfrey Talent Show on television, yeah, right, and right. her stage name was Jeanette Bard. B-A-R-D. B-A-R-D, that's right. So maybe I'll, I'll... During New York City's great crime wave of the 1980s, getting an apartment was simple. All you had to do was commit a crime. We, we had heard from a friend of a friend that if we went down and gave key money, uh, that if to say one month's rent the going fee, uh, to this superintendent, that is to say, Bob, uh, that we would be able to get an apartment. This is my friend Kevin. He and I got our apartments in the same building on 99th Street in the early 80s by bribing the same superintendent, a guy named Bob. These were old. John McCain was a Navy pilot, right? He flew off aircraft carriers. Everybody knows that. He trained at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And when he goes back to visit, he often eats at Pusser's Landing. The manager, Michael Schwartz, says it's not hard to see why. There are huge models of military ships all over the restaurant. When you walked in, we have a carrier out front. We have the Constitution. Pusser's Restaurant is right on the dock. It overlooks a waterway nicknamed Ego Alley. That's because people parade past the restaurant at their boats. Inside Pusser's, there are life preservers on the walls and replicas of leaping fish. And here's something interesting. Just about everybody on the staff has seen John McCain because he eats here when he visits his son. In fact, his son's the fourth generation in McCain's family at the Naval Academy. But I couldn't find anybody at Pusser's who's really talked with a senator. Okay, so again, those are really just uh, to prime your ear. Um, we're going to start in with our first session and uh, I want to let you know that after each time we track someone, there'll be an opportunity for you to talk to the reporter and the producer and well, as well as the coach. Uh, but first, we'll, we'll track a little bit uh, to actually have something to talk about. Uh, so we're going to start with Jesse Dukes. Uh, Jesse? 
Where are you? There you are. Um, Jesse, come on up. You're going to be here. And Jane is going to track you. Um, Jesse is based in Virginia. He's an independent producer. He's been a public radio producer since 2005. He's produced stories for Studio 360, Day to Day, Weekend Edition. He's reported from Cairo, Tanzania, Alaska, and Luxembourg. And uh, you have your scripts. Uh, Jesse, you want to tell us a little bit about this piece? Is a piece that already aired, yeah? It did. It's about the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia and when they built it, I guess you don't build a park, but when they created it, uh, there were like 500 families living in the mountains where the park was created. And so they had to get rid of them. And so the story kind of tells the story of getting rid of the people, making room for the park. And you know, I'm just noticing, you should, we should, you should do what you want. Comfortable. Yeah, exactly. however, hmm. if you like standing or sitting. Yeah, let's take a load off. <laughs> and Jane, you decided to sit. I always sit. <laughs> I'm too lazy. No, um, I just feel more comfortable sitting. And it's this can be so uncomfortable sometimes that you know, your physical <laughs> um, feeling is important. I have a question. Are we going to be playing tape during this? Yeah. Yep. OK, I never play tape yeah, this is good. when I direct people, so just. Well, let's it's ask, an option. Let's, let's ask Jesse. I mean, Jesse, do you do you want to play tape? Does it help you to hear it? Yeah. Okay. I That's think, fine. I think so. Um, okay. I'll probably say a lot of stuff that only makes sense to you and I, and we can talk about it later as a group. But because um, you guys can't see the script, so. One thing that Jane brought up, which is also really true, is uh, you know we are we all may be thinking about um, Jesse is really on the spot now. But Jane is too. And uh, you also never really track someone, or it's rare to track someone when you've just been given the piece a minute before. Yeah, I, have, I don't know what this is yet, so I haven't looked at it at all. But usually you're tracking someone, I think, if you have the luxury of having someone to track you, it's usually been someone who's been working on the piece with you. So you guys have some kind of rapport, whatever that rapport may be. Let's just pretend we're homies at this point. So you want to just yeah. get away, Jane? Okay. Um, we don't need to listen to the ambience, though, at the very beginning, right? Is that what no, this is? I don't right even here? have it. Okay. Do you want to just give me the first paragraph? Sure. This is maybe my 30th time visiting Shenandoah National Park. And usually when I come up here to remember... Hmm, that's not right. You can just pick up at the beginning of the sentence. You don't have to go back. And usually when I come up here, it's to remember what the world looks like without people and roads and houses... But this is the first time I've been up here looking for wild apple trees. Perfect. That was awesome. Oh. <laughs> that was really great. This is going to be so easy. OK, um, just give it to me one more time so I have another option. Okay. The other thing is I always have headphones on. So this is a little hard because I'm not listening to it through headphones. And so, I've never heard my voice like this when I'm doing this yeah, it's, either. Yeah, it's, it's weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, I'm hoping you didn't pop a pee, but I can't totally tell. Um, but yeah, just give it to me one more time. Okay. This is maybe my 30th time visiting Shenandoah National Park. And usually when I come up here, it's to remember what the world looks like without people and roads and houses. But this is the first time I've been up here looking for wild apple trees. Great. Can you give me um, the first sentence and just slow down on Shenandoah? Okay. This is maybe my, <laughs> this is maybe my 30th time visiting Shenandoah National Park. Great. 
I don't do very good on the um, tree identification in the winter. Yeah, it helps in the fall when there are yeah, apples. Right, then I'm real good at it. When there's apples hanging off of it. Okay, go ahead. Claire Comer is an interpretive ranger, and we're looking for apple trees because somebody would have had to plant them. We want to find evidence of human life from before this was Shenandoah National Park. And Claire has a particular spot she wants to show me. The only problem is we can't find it. Um, okay, great. That was great. I'm going to have you change a little bit of the wording in the first sentence. Okay. Just a tiny thing. Um, I would say uh, we're looking for apple trees because a person would have had to, would have had to plant them. Okay. Um, we're looking for evidence of human life from before. You know, just so you, so it's clear to me what the topic, what what your goal is here. I, that you're looking for. Okay. Evidence of people. People. <laughs> um, yeah. So Should I say people me. instead of human life? I think you can say human life. The second sentence. Okay. Um, yeah. Jenny, do you want to hear the end of the tape? Sure. No. Sure. <laughs> Enter. Yeah, it but, helps in the fall when there are yeah, apples. Right, then I'm real good at it. When there's apples hanging off Claire Comer is an interpretive ranger, and we're looking for apple trees because a person would have planted them. We're looking for evidence of human life from before this was Shenandoah National Park, and Claire has a particular spot she wants to show me. The only problem is we can't find it. One more time, um, and slow down just a little bit. I think you can say because a person... I just have to ask you. So we... Apple trees can't grow on their own? Mm, I don't know, but I don't think so. They're certainly not native to the area. Okay. Um, they, maybe so, we should say that. Okay. Is that... Okay. Claire Comer is an interpretive ranger, and we're looking for mm-hmm. apple trees because they're not native. I think that was an original Yeah, original. yeah. It was in the original script? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they're not native. Someone would have had to plant them. That makes more sense. Native. Somebody okay. would have... Interjection. Somebody would have had to plant them. Mm -hmm. And then just read the rest as it is. Okay. Okay. Claire Claire Comer is an interpretive ranger, and we're looking for apple trees because they're not native. Somebody would have had to plant them. We want to find evidence of human life from before this was Shenandoah National Park, and Claire has a particular spot she wants to show me. The only problem is we can't find it. Great. Perfect. Not looking familiar? Uh, well, and I know at this particular site, there's shoes, there's shovels. Uh, Do you want me to just read out of the tape? Mm-hmm. Okay. Can I hear it again? Mm-hmm. Not looking familiar? Uh, well, and I know at this particular site, there's shoes, there's shovels. Uh, Before it was founded in 1936, Shenandoah National Park was just an idea one that began in 1924 when the federal government decided we needed an eastern park, something like Yellowstone or Yosemite, but closer to where all the people lived. Wealthy people from Washington were already visiting the Blue Ridge, most famously at Skyland Lodge, where they could ride horses, stay in cabins, and go hunting. Its owner, George Pollock, saw a national park as a way to bring in more customers, and he recruited some of his friends in government or business to the cause. Nice. Do you want to change something? I I changed it in my head, but it just says to cause. Uh-huh. It should say to the cause. Great. And is it is it Washington D.C.? Yeah. Okay. I would just add that. 
DC. Okay, Washington, DC. Um, and just give it to me one more time, a little more tossed off. You don't have to be so careful. Okay. Before it was founded in 1936, Shenandoah National Park was just an idea. When that began in 1924, when the federal government, 1924, when the federal government decided we needed an eastern park, something like Yellowstone or Yosemite, but close to where all the people lived. Wealthy people from Washington, D.C. were already visiting the Blue Ridge, most famously at Skyland Lodge, where they could ride horses, stay in cabins, and go hunting. Its owner, George Pollock, saw a national park as a way to bring in more customers, and he recruited some of his friends in government or business to the cause. Great. One more time. I'm going to have you slow down. Slow. That was really good. Um, yeah, slow down a little bit and have a little bit more fun. <laughs> you know, think about what we're saying here. So this is like the birth of the park, right? Mm -hmm. And we're trying to drum up some interest in it. Yeah. Before it was founded in 1936, Shenandoah National Park was just an idea. One that began in 1924 when the federal government decided we needed an eastern park. Something like Yellowstone or Yosemite, but close to where all the people lived. Wealthy people from Washington, D.C. were already visiting the Blue Ridge, most famously at Skyland Lodge, where they could ride horses, stay in cabins, and go hunting. Its owner, George Pollock, saw a national park as a way to bring in more customers, and he recruited some of his friends in government or business to the cause. Okay, I'm going to have you take two sentences again. That was perfect. Mm -hmm. um, something like Yellowstone or Yosemite, pause, but closer to where all the people lived. Just give me that. Something like Yellowstone or Yosemite, but closer to where all the people lived. Great. And the last sentence, um, its owners on National Park, maybe we can say, um, so he recruited some of his friends. Bring in more customers, period. So he recruited some of his. Yeah. And okay. just take those two, now that's two sentences, take them a little bit slower. Take a pause in between. Okay. Its owner, George Pollock, saw National Park as a way to bring in more customers. So he recruited some of his friends in government or business to the cause. Great. That was excellent. As we, we're going to keep going. Jane, what are you listening for? I'm listening for him to sound like he's just talking to me and not reading, mainly. I'm, I'm, listening, to, to, I'm listening to get the idea of the story, too, because I, I don't want to get lost. Like, I, wanna, I, want you to, I want to understand what you're telling well, me. Well, it helps that you don't know what the story is about, because mm -hmm. if you'd been editing me, you would know. But right. now that you don't know, you can tell when you're confused. Right. Right, so I'm listening just to, the, to make sure that the story gets across and that it sounds interesting. <laughs> and when you and are tra tracking someone, do you read the script? Not always. I mean, I'll look at it for sure just to make sure I know what's there. But um, Ira, I started out directing him doing like our promos and stuff for the show. Um, and he's like, don't look at the script when I'm, when I'm reading because um, you're not going to be paying attention to what I'm saying. You're just going to be making sure I'm saying every word that I'm supposed to be saying, but not actually hearing the way that I'm reading. So, um, yeah, I don't always read along. I try to make sure you get things right. I wouldn't want you to get the years wrong or something or miss an important detail. But um, I try to think of like, oh, if this is in my headphones and I'm, you know, at home just listening without paper in front of me. And you told Jesse to try to have a little more fun. Mm -hmm. What, how do you get someone to, I mean, 
to try to have fun. Smile at them. I don't know. But what, um, what if you're not on the, what, in the yeah. same room? Like, aren't you, I joke around with them if they're on an ISDN. I don't know. We, like, like I said, we usually know each other a lot better than this, <laughs> even if it's just like been a day or two that we've worked together. Um, <clears throat> but I, I tend to joke around a lot. Not an, you know, not, not if it's like a serious, serious story. Does this get really serious? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay let's There's going. a little crying. It all happened a long time ago. So. Going to yeah. play the third act? Mm-hmm. So they filled out a nomination form and sent that in, and this was chosen as one of the sites to look at. The federal government had a specific idea of what a park should be. In the mold of Yellowstone and Yosemite, they wanted stunning beauty, sites for fishing, hiking, and access to roads. But most importantly, they wanted it to be a wilderness, free of human settlement and development. So the Virginians fudged a little bit on their application. Great. Um, that was great. Would you underline the word specific? Do you have a pen? Mm-hmm. I do. Where's specific? Oh, specific. The government had a specific idea of what a park should be. Okay. Um, and then you keep in mind that you're going to be defining what that is, right? Okay. So, I mean, I would think of that um, dash as a colon, or as a, yeah, as a colon instead, <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so give it to me one more time. The federal government had a specific idea of what a park should be. In the mold of Yellowstone and Yosemite, they wanted stunning beauty, sites for fishing, hiking, and access to roads. But most importantly, they wanted it to be a wilderness, free of human settlement and development. So the Virginians fudged a little bit on their application. Great. Um, One more time, and give me that last sentence. Um, And I think also in the first sentence, when you say specific idea of what a park should be. Should be. Here's what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the last sentence, um, you can be a little snarkier, mm-hmm. like just so we have that take. I might not use it, but um, just so we have one where you're being funny. Okay. Yeah, let me just pause before that mm-hmm. to get into the headspace. <clears throat> you're doing great. Thanks. The federal government had a specific idea of what a park should be. I'll try that again. The federal government had a specific idea of what a park should be. In the mold of Yellowstone and Yosemite, they wanted stunning beauty, sites for fishing, hiking, and access to roads. But most importantly, they wanted it to be a wilderness, free of human settlement and development. So the Virginians fudged a little bit on their application. Awesome. They said that this area was pristine and free of inhabitations or developments. This, as they knew full well, was not true. And Claire has just found the proof of that. Nice. Just give that to me one more time just so I have it. Okay. This, as they knew full well... Wait, can we wait till the sirens? Yeah. That's a real thing. (laughs) If they stop. We have, in our building, they're like resurfacing the building and you can hear like jackhammers outside sometimes. So we have to stop a lot. Mm -hmm. All right. Can I hear the tape again? They said that this area was pristine and free of inhabitations or developments. This, as they knew full well, was not true. And Claire has just found the proof of that. Great. Can you do one more time? Um, And instead of was not, say wasn't. 
just okay. so I have it in more talky language. Mm -hmm. Can I hear the tip again? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're doing great. They said that this area was pristine and free of inhabitations or developments. This, as they knew full well, wasn't true. And Claire has just now found the look, proof of that. A, oh, I'm sorry. That was me. Sorry. Want to give me that last sentence? Okay. Just not true. And Claire has just found the proof of that. Great. Now look, there's a rock pile. See? Yeah. A whole pair of boots. Wow. What we found is what we found is one of some 500 home sites that existed before there ever was a Shenandoah National Park. Wow. Really? <laughs> yeah. Cool. I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's that's really what we found. Yeah. This is okay. So that's. I would. I don't know. I'd play up the drama a little bit more. So maybe um, what we've found is one of some five hundred. You know, just keep in mind that this is like what. <laughs> okay. Just give it to me one more time. Okay. What we found. Hmm. What we found. What we found is one of some 500 home sites that existed before there ever was a Shenandoah National Park. Great, and just underline home a little bit more, like 500 homes, or home, home sites. Maybe so homes. Home. What's a home site? <laughs> <laughs> that's what she kept calling it, but okay, uh, I don't have to use that language, do I? What we found is... Yeah, the remnants of one of... Is it the remnants? It's the remnants. Right? Okay. Mm -hmm. What we found is the remnants of... We can do that. What we found is one... It's the remnants of one... Of some 500 homes that existed here. That's what I would say. That existed here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. What's happening? Oh. <laughs> can you hear the tape? Yeah. Now look, there's a rock pile. See? Yeah. A pair of boots. Wow. What we found is the remnants of one of some 500 homes, one of some 500 homes that existed here before there ever was a Shenandoah National Park. One more time just so I have it. Mm. That's great. What we found is the remnants of one of some 500 homes that existed here before there ever was a Shenandoah National Park. Great, give me Shenandoah National Park just slower. Do the whole thing once and it's just slow down on it. I know. <laughs> um, the whole thing, you said? Yep, just okay. slow down on that. What we found is, I forget how it goes. What we found is the remnants of one of some 500 homes that existed here before there ever was a Shenandoah National Park. Beautiful. And evidently, uh -huh. something collapsed here, maybe a chimney or, or something. As it turns out, there were close to a thousand farmers and ranchers in the mountains. Also industry, mines, apple orchards, tan bark harvesting, lumbering. So in 1926, when the federal government okayed a future park, the Virginians had a problem. What were they going to do about all the people living and working in the mountains? It just so happens that at the same time, sociologists and anthropologists had begun to focus their attention on the people living in remote mountain communities. Give me that last sentence again. Okay. 
It just so happens that at the same time, sociologists and anthropologists had begun to focus their attention on the people living in remote mountain communities. That was beautiful. Um, I would just do one thing over, which is um, also industry. Um, what's tan bark harvesting? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, is it just bark? Uh, it's the bark they use to make acid that they then use to cure leather. Okay. I would just slow down on tan bark. I tan just went by to where I couldn't hear what you were saying. Just okay. that sentence. Okay. It turns out there were close to a thousand farmers and ranchers in the mountains. Also industry, mines, apple orchards, tan bark harvesting, lumbering. One more time, maybe not so careful. Just a little slower. (laughs) Tan bark harvesting. It turns out there were close to a thousand farmers and ranchers in the mountains. Also industry, mines, apple orchards, tan bark harvesting, lumbering. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about what we've seen. Jesse, what situations, how do you normally track pieces? Where are you, for one, physically? It really depends on who I'm Talk working. on mic. It really depends with who I'm working with. But a lot of times these days, I do it by myself, you know, in my room or in a closet or something like that. Uh, and, um, and I don't have the benefit of hearing the tape, usually. So I will read it to myself a lot of the time. And if I'm working with an editor, which is great, I'll either hear the clips back or sometimes they'll read them to me. Sometimes I do it in the studio and, you know, either over the phone or in person. And what do you do at home to sort of like get into your tracking self? Um, well, do you, do? you know, loosen up and go, you know, practice all the consonant sounds and drink tea. Um, and then the thing that I often do to make it sound more like me is I'll say something like, okay, or here's the thing, or mm-hmm. some sort of prompt that knocks me out of reading a script and makes me feel like I'm just telling somebody. And it, I don't know, it seems to work pretty well. Um, and, and I do it a lot, over and over again, until mm-hmm. I, I get one that I like. But it's really nice to have someone else listening, too, because when you're trying to read it, you're also not really, you don't want to be too self-conscious of right. how it sounds. You're a great reader. Thank you. Do, really? do you ever feel stumped by people? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, well, it's a lot, we work with, we work with a lot of people who are like pros and like one take, you know, and, and then we also work with people who've never, ever been in the studio before. And so sometimes when someone is really nervous, like for example, right here, I feel like that last paragraph we did, you really, you were hitting your stride, right? That was like basically mm-hmm. one take mm-hmm. and we probably could have gone through the rest of the piece and you would have been there. And then we would have just gone back and redone the first half of the first page, you know, just for continuity to make the whole thing sound the same, but you were really getting comfy. And some people just never get comfortable because it's really nerve-wracking and it's maybe their first time trying something like this. I feel like that's... What would you say, Julie, as far as being stumped? I feel like usually it's just somebody who's just nervous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would say so, too. Yeah. I, I, I was nervous for years. <laughs> like, really nervous. I, I sometimes <laughs> will... Um, I'll read it, and if I'm having trouble with it... Bless you. Sometimes I'll rewrite it, because I, I think the problem isn't me, it's that it's just not written... In the sound. way that you talk. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I'll sit there and I'll say, okay, how would I just say this? Mm-hmm. And try to think of that. And, and so sometimes I'll do a read-through, make a bunch of notes, and go back and rewrite the script. And then... We do a through. lot of little rewriting, like how we did here in mm-hmm. the studio. What questions do you have? Yeah. Sorry. No. Um... <laughs> I wanted to know how you are able to track uh, voices who, where there are cultural or regional differences, where you want to capture that essence of the cadence of their speech, but 
but you still want to have something that's appropriate for radio so that all listeners will be able to understand and hear what they're saying. Well, that goes so back to... repeat the question? Yeah, yeah. Um, she wants to know how you track Thanks. someone who might have a different um, dialect or somebody who has a different way of speaking than, you know, your, your Midwestern radio announcer voice or something. Um, but I think that goes back to spending time with the person before you go into the studio, you know? I, I think our goal is to have someone sound like themselves, right? And so sound most like themselves on the radio. And so whatever that is... That's what we're aiming for. Um, and you usually have a pretty good idea of how somebody talks, you know, after working with them for a few weeks. And so I don't know. I, we, we're not like directing people to sound like a, a, a radio announcer or to have like a certain um, way of speech other than their own, I think is the goal usually. So um, I coach people tracking a lot. And I think the problem that I come across the most is people haven't decided what a reporter sounds like. Right. And it's like right off, you know, probably they're mimicking NPR a mm -hmm, lot. Mm -hmm. um, and we do the rewriting, and I try to make them sound like themselves. But I, I get stumped because, like, I just, I have them repeat it over and over again, and I can't get them to stop doing the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So how, would you, how do you go about getting them out of that? This sounds like to it's hard first of all and I'm, the way I'm going to answer this makes it sound like it's easy but um, one thing I say is like okay less sing songy and I'll maybe mimic what they're doing in a nice way in a really nice way <laughs> I will we had a reporter this is a good example and I love him so this he, he, whatever um, Frank Langfitt did something for us on the radio and he kept saying the word um, Tennessee he was saying Tennessee when he got to it every time and I was like do you really like ten Tennessee is that how you say Tennessee you emphasize the 10 and he was like maybe I don't so it was that kind of thing where I was like okay put the underline Tennessee the way people say Tennessee and so it's a lot of like be flatter don't be sing-songy and take your emphasis off of the words that you're emphasizing words based on like I don't know what like poetry and you know I don't even understand how to talk about it that way. Like, I don't I understand what patterns. words. It's, it's pitch meter. patterns. Oh, meter. Okay. Well, whatever that is. So <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I'll just be like, ear, let's try underlining different words. That's how I explain it. You, uh, it was really helpful. You had an idea of the sentence. The federal government have a specific idea of what the part should be, and you said it for me the way that you wanted to hear it, and that was that was really helpful. I do that a lot. I sometimes quite, I mean, I, you know, I could tell it wasn't working, but actually hearing, oh, yeah, that's what it should sound like. It yeah, that's a, that's another trick to try too. If if people are kind of doing a sing songy thing that isn't totally get, making sense, is to be like, just repeat after me. There's one more question. Let mm -hmm. me just I'll take that in the right. You yeah. Uh, a question for you about the close, the very last like two three lines before the before the sock. I've noticed some reporters sort of they go full out, stop, and then do their sock, and it, it always sounds very abrupt. And then there's some that kind of walk down there track before they do their sock and I was curious what you know if there's any sort of preference that directors seem to have on that do you mean going to the tape I don't know what these no. words are what, what? Oh, sorry so at the end when you say you know like you know your, your question is like is, how to signal that the piece is ending using your tempo in your narration to signal to the listener okay get ready for this piece to end now so that you don't feel like I've surprised you right before you do like name NPR News Chicago or whatever. right um, yeah, usually I have them slow, like take some pauses. But you know, we can put pauses in 
in post too, in editing later or in mixing later. Um, so if they're not, you know, really winding it down, I can kind of do that synthetically. Um, but yeah, I, you know what I just say is like, remember we're getting to the ending. This is the ending. <laughs> and then just that they keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, you know what, just, just to respond, this came up yesterday too, uh, and to respond to this, John, if you're game, we're going to go to our next, uh, next piece. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, can we do just the open and the close? Let's, let's, because it actually is a, it's an interesting point, and uh, Dean, you seem game, you're game for that? Yeah, let's, so what we'll do is we'll just do the opening of this piece in the very end and uh, try to talk about that exact issue. Um, so thank you, Jesse. Um, our next uh, reporter producer is John Bewin, who many of you know. He directs the audio program at the Center for Documentary Studies. And you also hear his work a lot on NPR. Um, he, around here, he's also known as the editor of Reality Radio. Um, they're going to stand, as you see. This obviously changes uh, depending on. John, do you normally stand? I've done both ways, but I actually usually sit, but I, I, I think it's a good idea to stand. So let's try it. Just have to I usually <coughs> sit and really try to sit up erect or else I stand. <laughs> By the way, Emily Boutine, who's a contributor to Reality Radio, wrote a really, really great essay. You're off mic. She's on mic. I'm on mic. I'm on mic. Emily Botine, by the way, who wrote a wonderful essay for Reality Radio. Uh, had to be coaxed to do it, but it's awesome. Coaxed, coaxed. Oh, I, yeah, I am going to need my reading glasses at this size. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I did yeah. talking about larger fonts. Yeah. I, I thought about that after, and then I was like, oh, how many trees? And I, yeah. <laughs> I've just recently got old enough to need these. And Don't you hate that? I do. That's how you know. Yeah. It's all over. It's all downhill from here. You know, uh, and J- Jane actually just brought up um, pay. There's, there's lots of little, like, uh, logistical things about tracking. Jane just brought up the importance of not having your copy run over pages. That's yeah. what you meant, right? The, yeah, like mm-hmm. out of page. At a page break, yeah. so that you don't have to switch pages while you're reading. Um, so, John, do you want to tell us a little bit about what this piece? Uh, Actually, okay. can, can I ask you uh, if you it. wouldn't mind uh, telling me in one sentence what this piece is about? This piece is about a small town in eastern Kentucky, where 90 years ago they ran all the black people out, uh, and it's about the the legacy and the denial that persists in the community okay. years later. Okay, so that's uh, the topic sentence of John's piece, and uh, if he were a reporter working with me, I would insist that he write that at the moment of pitching his piece to me before any of the reporting began. And you would not believe how many people refuse to do this and how much uh, they regret it later, because it's the one thing that gives you your true north as you're making a piece. Like, what is the piece about? You're sifting through hours of tape. Well, if you go back to that sentence, it'll remind you, oh yes, it's about this. This tape that I love so much doesn't apply. Now, before we go any further, um, I'm just going to chat a little bit. It's been a while since I've seen you. Have you been? Doing okay. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. That doesn't sound very good. <laughs> you sound kind of depressed. What's happening? Oh, no, no, no. Things are good. I was, it was, I was pretending there. I thought, oh. you know, it was sort of like... Yeah. 
I actually, actually, well, things are really great, Dean. How are you? Although I do care about John's personal life, what I'm also doing is listening to how John really talks, uh, because that often gets lost pretty quickly when we go through this. Um, so, uh, so we would chat a little bit more, and uh, we, I get him comfortable. We sort of back into the piece. I try to sneak up on him so that he doesn't realize that this is where the work begins now. So this is a long introduction. Um, so the, the intro to this piece, once in a while, you come across an American town or county that has long been virtually all white, even though surrounding communities have substantial black populations. It may not always be an accident. In the six decades following the Civil War, in more than a few rural communities, white mobs violently expelled virtually all of their black neighbors. A new book, Buried in the Bitter Waters, describes a dozen of these racial expulsions. Among the places living with this uneasy history is Corbin, Kentucky, a small railroad town in the Appalachian foothills. John, John B. Wynn of the Center for Documentary Studies produced our story. Now, I want to listen to your first piece of tape first. Mm -hmm. I think that the the first time I realized that there was something wrong with where I was from. I think that I was probably around six or seven at the time. I only ever track pieces listening to tape. I can't imagine not. I know there are plenty of people who don't listen to the tape, but I'm listening for inflection. And, and so I want to know, what do you need to say? I don't want you to look at your script while you're reading this. I want you to look down at what's in that paragraph and tell me what the essential information is that will lead us to our target of the first piece of tape. What is it? Just tell me. Oh, um, that uh, the people in this town uh, will assure you that their town is a really nice, friendly place. Uh, what they want you to know about it is that it's the uh, home of the world's first Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. <laughs> tell me that again without looking at your script. Okay. Um, people in Corbin, Kentucky, say their town is a friendly place with good schools. It's the home of the world's first Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant, which was founded by Colonel Sanders in the 1930s. Let's hear the tape. I think that the, the first time I realized that there was something wrong with where I was from, I think that I was probably around six or seven at the time. So that, I thought, worked pretty well. Um, John is, uh, you know, putting in all the information that is in his script. He has not read it verbatim. Um, but you've told that in exactly the storytelling fashion that I would expect if we were sitting around drinking bourbon by the fire. Um, the one thing I'm going to try to goose him a little bit, because although I want people to sound like themselves, I want them to sound like a version of themselves mm -hmm. that works on the radio. Uh, I find if I'm being really myself, I'm a little flat. So, um, so let's, yeah. how, I'm trying to think about how I'm going to make that happen. I mean, I'll just share that with you and try it one more time. Well, and, and, and I think in a way, when you, I, I, that's certainly true of me too, and it's, I, I told Emily when she called and asked me to do this, that um, it took me about 15 years of you know, working in radio full time before I felt reasonably adequate and competent at reading. And, and that was the main struggle, was because I am flat. And so when you asked me the question, I answered you as if we were sitting, eat, right. drinking bourbon. Right, so now we do it not again. The way I would, right. uh, not the way I would do it on the radio. Now you're going to be John B. Wynn in quotation marks. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, maybe, and, and, you know, maybe if once we had, in, in, after the second bourbon, 
and I got a little more animated. I mean, it is, I think you're right. It is a version of who I am that yeah. I'm going for, but probably not the most right. common, you know, laid back one. But one of the I'm things from, I'm going to be I'm listening for, you know? <laughs> I'm going to be listening to make sure that those pauses are still in there because I want them. That's how I know John is being authentic and speaking because I'm hearing him reach for the word. And that's, that's what I miss when I listen to NPR because it's so digested. And I shut off, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's Charlie Brown's teacher talking to me, you know. And so I'm, I'm trying to rough it up a little bit so that I can hear him thinking and I'm in contact with a human consciousness. So tell me one more time. And look, me in the, I notice how he's looking me in the eye, you may not be able to see it in the back. He's not reading, he's telling me. Yeah, hell <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dean, <laughs> let me tell you about this. People in Corbin, Kentucky will tell you their town is a friendly place with good schools. It's the home of the world's first Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant, opened by Colonel Sanders in the 1930s. Great. You know what's interesting? That was the most on script. It was. He read it. Well, it was, and this act actually happens. And we get to this point, and it's like, OK, let's move on, because we're starting to get too comfortable with it. Right? Mm -hmm. So I might actually go with the previous take. Uh, we know that that works going into the tape. And then you're going to be talking out of this next, uh, this first piece of tape that we heard. So she's, we, we know that what's going to have to happen here, he's going to have to back ID her because we've not heard her name yet. Um, and then, so he's going to make the transition to the next piece of tape. So before we even start looking at your script, I want to hear the two uh, actualities on their own so we know what trajectory you have to make. Go ahead. First and second? Or yep. I think that the, the first time I realized that there was something wrong with where I was from, I think that I was probably around six or seven at the time. This really nice man stopped and picked us up and said, I'll take you to the gas station and, and bring you back. And he was African American. And we got in the car and he's, you know, just talking to us, talking to my mom and he finally came around. Where are y'all from? Let's stop it there. The tape goes on, but so so the what matters here is we have to know this woman's name, and she you're clearly setting up a story, right? Right. So there's key information. You're allowed to look now and see what that information is, and then uh, I'll I'll tell you. You know, I, she's ending her first track. I'm, uh, I think it was about six or seven at the time, and she's not finishing her sentence. Right? right. You heard that. That's why I need to hear the tape because you're picking up her, her sentence that is unfinished, right, and finishing it for her. So maybe actually let's listen to the last piece of tape and then you'll start. I think that the, the first time I realized that there was something wrong with where I was from, I think that I was probably around six or seven at the time. Laura Smith is now 26, uh, sorry. I'm sorry. Laura Smith is now 27 years old. She has long blonde hair. Her family has lived in Corbin for generations. She says when she was a child, she and her mother were on a trip to Lexington when they ran out of gas. So when you said she says when she was in a child, that sounds like it's lapsing a little bit into radio script speak. But what you did so great was you picked up her sentence mm -hmm. in mid-trajectory and you, and you continued it. And I want to do that again. If you could just play the last bit of that tape again, I think it was probably... I think that I was probably around six or seven at the time. Laura Smith is now 20. Uh, I need to introduce her more, too. That's the first time we're saying her name. So That's I right. Should, you want to yeah. lean on it a little yeah. bit. Mm -hmm. I think that I was probably around six or seven at the time. Laura Smith is now 27. She has long blonde hair. Her family has lived in Corbin for generations. 
She says, when she and her mother were on a trip to Lexington, uh, no, I'm sorry. She says, stop. So we've got the start uh, of this and we can pick up from there. Been in Corbin for generations. So now what has to happen is you just need to set up her story so that she can deliver the punchline. Okay. So I think I'm going to, I have one idea for how to do it. So just you can finish that sentence. She's been in Corbin for generations and go from there. Okay. When she was a child, she and her mother were on a trip to Lexington, she says, when they ran out of gas. That's good. I might actually clip out when he says she says, because that's a little bit newspapery. But I, I mean, I'm listening for those opportunities to edit, and I know that that'll be an easy edit. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to not even bother him about that. Don't tell him I've said this. <laughs> and I'm going to continue on. <laughs> so there's a big chunk of tape here now. Do you want to continue, or do you want to go straight to the end? Uh, let's do this one next transition. Mm-hmm. All right, so he set up the story. Let's hear the next tape, please. Do you want me uh, Mm-hmm. I, I, this really nice man stopped and picked us up and said, I'll take you to the gas station and, and bring you back. And he was African-American. And we got in the car and he's, you know, just talking to us, talking to my mom. And he finally came around, where are y'all from? And my mom, you know, just looked over and said, we're from Williamsburg. And I was shocked <laughs> because my mom was lying. I remember sitting in the back seat and just kind of taking that all in and the gear starting to turn and just being like, okay, there's something not okay with telling people, especially, you know, African-American people that were from Corbin. Well, years back, it was a very, very sad situation in Corbin. My name is Laverta Booth. I was born in Knox County. 1927. Mrs. Booz lives in Barberville, 15 miles southeast of Corbin. It's a, uh, for a century, Corbin has been the railroad hub for this part of Kentucky. In the, days of passen- in the days of passenger trains, that meant blacks going to Barberville used the Corbin station. I loved the first part, and it sounded yeah. like you were talking to me, and then you got yeah. away from that. Yeah. I hadn't looked, too, so right. I was having so, to look at the script and remind myself. So get it in your head first, yeah. right, so that you know what needs to be said. Um, and, and so that you know what's essential, we're going to listen to the next piece of tape, right? Right. Okay. They would be scared to even get off the train. Face facts, it was a very dangerous situation to come to Carbon, African American. It really was. Okay, so she begins by saying they. And so your key right. role here is you have to give us the antecedent yeah. for what they refers to. Right. That's what matters most. So you're continuing her story, and you have to hit that. So if you wouldn't mind just picking up where she says, My name is My Laverta. name is Laverta Booth. I was born in Knox County. 1927. Mrs. Booze lives in <clears throat> excuse me. Mrs. Booze lives in Barberville, 15 miles southeast of Corbin. For a century, Corbin has served as the railway hub for this part of Kentucky, and that meant that blacks going to Barberville used the Corbin station. Fantastic, fantastic. That's really, really good. Um, and you're and you're. You're maintaining the proper tempo because you're you're basically serving in between uh, the tape as sinew, right? You're keeping these bits of cartilage together, and and so the tempo is essential 
and you're doing that in, in just the right way so that we have the sense of continuation of the story. So Let's jump to the end. Okay. John, do you do a lot of tracking? <laughs> um, I did. Um, for 20 years, everything I did was tracked. And, and this piece is three years old, and it's basically the last thing I did that was um, uh, from the start designed to be tracked. Um, mm -hmm. So I've, I've been mostly doing unnarrated work mm -hmm. recently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, prompted that team? Um, well, you know, I don't have like a, a dog in that fight or an ideology <laughs> about, it's more just, it's, it's, it came with a shift in, in the work a little bit. I worked for news organizations for 20 years, NPR, NPR, American Radio Works, which was long form documentary, but still with a very kind of journalistic um, uh, emphasis and, you know, as much kind of uh, explanation and, and, uh, information as you could get in in the time allotted and narration is great that's the way to, that's the best way to do it. it's very efficient and um, when I moved from American Radio Works to CDS um, that coincided with a desire to do work that was um, a little less issue and, and a little more story and so I found myself the more I was as hard as I was working to take listeners into somebody's life and their experience and into a place that sort of thing it, it came to feel that that uh, mediating voice felt like an intrusion, and if I could, if I could find a way to do without it, then I, then I wanted to. Can I argue with John for a second? I'm going to put a dog in this race. Um, I, I've heard people say a lot. There was somebody who once worked for me who said, "Well, now that Pro Tools makes it possible to have self-narrated pieces, then our, you know, you would only hear actuality tape, and you would cut out the narrator." Well, of course, that would be the goal for every piece. And I was like, "No effing way, man! I would hate to lose the narrator because." The narrator is my friend. The narrator is the person who is acting as my surrogate in this piece. I'm counting on that narrator to be where I can't be, right? I want more of you. You're not an intrusion for me at all. You're the person holding my hand, my Virgil through purgatory. So, um, so I actually feel somewhat ideological about this. The, the movement away from the narrator makes me sad. You still do great work when it's not narrated, but, but I, I want to make the case on behalf of narration. Um, okay. If somebody else were arguing the other side, I would agree with you. <laughs> but it depends. For me, it depends on the piece. <clears throat> it depends on the piece. I think um, uh, for me, an unnarrated piece, and, and maybe this will change, you know, when it gets, if it gets to be more common, but still it sort of um, stands out from the from the routine of the radio, and, and that helps. That's one reason. Um, but also, I think it just depends on... You, you, you certainly lose a lot. You lose a lot of sort of context. Um, but to the extent, if it's a relative... It, it works best when it's a relatively simple, simple story where you can sort of set it up with, a, with an introduction and then let that person tell the story. And I do think there's something gained by not having those intrusions. Mm. Maybe it's just a phase I'm going through. <laughs> well, there are a million ways to make a radio piece, and, and I agree that the routine gets boring. For me, the routine happens when you have a place like NPR that has a house style where nobody tells you you must sound like this, but it's precisely because there's nobody there saying, here, let's try to draw out the real you that everybody sort of coalesces into this same... So, um, um, Richard, did you have a question that you wanted to <clears throat> For the editors, do you ever... Um, have a situation where you've developed a warmth and a camaraderie with a narrator, for instance, while you're tracking. And through that, 
have a feeling that they have been much more natural sounding than when you go and listen to the tape and found out they actually were. I had that happen. I'm not. I'm not following what you're saying. Okay, so I'll tell you the situation. I have two documentaries narrated by astronauts. Yes. And we were having a lovely conversation back yeah. and forth while they were tracking the piece. And in both cases, when I sat down with the tape, they sounded much stiffer oh. than they did. I see. When I was chatting with them and having a good time. So Richard's point is saying you, the experience in the moment seems better than when you listen to the tape later. That happens to me a lot when I'm interviewing people as sources. I've not had the experience when I'm tracking people. Um, because, to be honest, what we're doing now, it can take so long doing this. And I, have, I also want to say, this is a luxury that most of you don't have when you're on deadline working for a show that has to you know, put out a product every day. Right, exactly. So, I mean, I developed this method because I had an hour of radio to make every week, and so I was able to take the time because I thought it was that important, um, because I thought it was not just an ornamental, nice thing, but it was the essential thing that made it possible for listeners to have an access point into what was being said, so that it wasn't just this monotone, blah, blah, blah. One more question, yeah? What you're doing by yourself, right. So I'm hoping that you can take some of this experience and then compress it into your one self, right? And absorb some of the, like if, if I could become your super ego, right? And you can hear me yelling at you, no, do you sound like you're reading? Just tell me, don't, don't read it. Um, look me in the eye, you know, if, if I could become that harping voice, uh, you know, so that you can do it all on your own, then that would be the best goal, right? Just, yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, I just had a question, if you're, if you're the editor, um, and you don't have a tech, and you're on the other side of the glass, yes. you can't be in the studio with the person, right. so you're teching it and you're tracking it. Yeah. Uh, do you have any tips for, for getting through the barrier? Because you're talking over talkback. I actually don't mind talking over talkback. I feel like you can still have a connection if you're looking through glass. I think it's very hard to do this remotely when you don't have a visual on the person. Well, Jane, aren't you usually... Are you often being the... Are you, Running the virtuals as well as the we we sit in the studio together. It's a little oh. booth, but uh, uh, more often I'm on I'm through ISDN. I would say more often than not, the person's not in the room. It's very hard to do when the person's not in the room. Hello. Hey. Um, so my question is, with the the method of just tell, talking your script. Yes. Do you find that you then don't fiddle with the minutia of you know the script in the same way to make sure you have every word? At all. A lot of words get rewritten. In fact, I've rewritten pieces in the booth. And again, this was a luxury I had because I was sort of the final word editorially, production-wise. It's like, I could do that. You're still meticulous with your script, even though you're essentially not reading it. I urge people to write a script because that's the moment where they know what their piece is about, right? Without going through that process, it's just too flabby, and they don't have a piece. And sometimes they'll be lazy, and we'll get to the end of the piece, and there's nothing there. And I'll insist that we do it in the room. And uh, we'll say, okay, well, what was about this piece that we've just listened to that we feel needs to come back here that will make for a satisfying ending? And so I will rewrite. But again, the word, the word writing is tricky because although I'm asking people to speak, there is, it's a middle ground between writing and speaking. The same work has gone into the writing. And, and they might have beautiful turns of phrase that they want to... <laughs> use in their speech, and that's great when we can make that happen. I actually have a question. Oh, sorry. Is this one okay? Yeah. 
about just the very first part of your script. The very first time Dean had you talk it, you implied that the people of Corbin, Kentucky, very much want you to know that they have a very nice town, which sort of seemed to be setting up a tension then going mm. into her, because you could tell that then that's kind of bullshit, right? But then I felt like the, the, your second and third takes, you lost that and you kind of just were doing, and I wasn't sure what you had written down or not. Like, what was your intention going into it? Was it, was it that they very much want you to know that they live in a very nice town? I think the script said, people in Corbin, Kentucky will tell you. Mm-hmm. I screwed up my script and I can't find it now. Yeah, you're oh, right. People from Kentucky will tell you their town is a friendly place with good schools. It's the proud home of the world's first Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, it's interesting. I, just because your very saying. first take actually, I thought had a little bit more. Um, more of that. I thought it was a little more dramatic when you sort oh. of implied that this is a little bit of a show. And if I liked the first sentence from your first take and the last sentence of your last take, I would totally cut them all together like that. Sure. Um, okay. So. Um, should we finish the piece? Or do you want to take a question? Hello? Yeah, I actually had a question for Jesse. Um, uh, you mentioned that a, a lot of times if you're having trouble tracking a line, you'll rewrite it. But a lot of the editors that I've worked with, that's sort of a very dicey proposition because they have, you know, changing something after it's been edited. How do you, how do you uh, sort of cope with that? Have you gotten um, any you know, negative feedback from editors saying, that's not how I edited it you know, after? I don't think they're paying that close attention. <laughs> well, you can get in trouble if you've made a change editorially. Uh, the question was, what do you do uh, when, you're, when you've realized you've got an editorial problem? I mean, to be honest, uh, this came up yesterday. The people who really need to go through a session like this are the editors. You know, back in the 90s, uh, you know, NPR was, um, uh, there was a sort of a, a struggle for the soul of NPR. You know, the radio people versus the journalism One. people. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so a lot of, right, nobody won. Uh, so a lot of uh, people with newspaper chops who were perceived to have the journalism skills were brought in as editors who were tone deaf to what makes radio, how to write for radio. So in a lot of ways, this method is, is meant to try to counteract that. But if this were incorporated into the editorial oversight of a piece, then a lot of this would be unnecessary. I'm, what I do in that situation is I record the thing that you have to record so you have it. Yeah. And then you give the editor the... the oh, okay. Well, and you, you... So let me repeat what Rebecca just said. So, uh, you, you make a safety... You have your safety. You have mm -hmm. that line that doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. Redo it, but you be sure you have it yeah. in case somebody's like, "What happened to that one?" That's right. Well, and usually, if the kind of thing that Jesse's talking about is where you're just, it's just something that has it doesn't quite come out right. You're making two sent one sentence, two sentences. You're usually not changing something factual or something. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. like a, a little wording thing. So. Mm -hmm. It's usually not a big deal. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. True. I want to go on to our next piece, but let's just because, because this question of ending came up. Let's listen to. Let's let's hear track twenty. Uh, I don't entirely know if we have time for two things, but we'll do it. Uh, quickly, we'll That's hear... That's a very shortcut, just yeah. right there. We're going to go to the very end of the piece and talk briefly about kind of tone and ending. So a lot of the people up here are stuck back in the 60s. Okay, so this is a guy... So this is the next to last piece this of is, tape. Right. John is approaching the end of his piece, and he's going to set up the last piece of tape. What we just heard was a lot of people up here are stuck back in the 60s. Okay. I may have to kind of look at... Look at it for a second. Okay. I'll vamp. I can tap dance while you're looking. I actually can tap okay. dance. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay. But at the same time, he says that the town does not live up to its image as a place where a black person had better get out of town before sundown or else. 
Sloan's friend, Laverta Booze from nearby Barberville, agrees. She shops in Corbin regularly. The last sentence was awful. <laughs> so say, say yeah. what it was that needed to be different yeah. about that last sentence. The last sentence, all of a sudden, I just you know read what was in front of me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I'd, I was talking up until you then, were talking up until that moment. I read, yeah. Exactly right. And so the very, fact very that you clear. can hear it makes it good, so that you want to match the spirit. Yeah. We won't go through that now, right. but we okay. know what needs to happen. Should let's, I hear the last let's hear the last piece of tape. It used to be that you could walk on the street. Oh, that go a nigger down the street. You would hear this in Carbon, Kentucky, but now it seems to be much, much better. Now you can walk into a store, you can get a nice smile. Still, some people in Corbin say their town has a lot of work to do before its old image is put to rest. And that can only start with some straight talk about the past. For NPR News, I'm John Bewin. So one important element here is we need to have a major pause after her tape before John speaks, right? And I want you to mentally hear that pause, even though that's something we can fix in post-production, right? You're giving her room Mm -hmm. for that line to sit before you respond to it. Hello. It's... (laughs) (laughs) Have we been talking that long? (laughs) Uh, So... So your, your job here is to not only give us the meaning of the words, but you're, you have to signal to us, here's the wind-up, here's, like, here's the closing pitch of the game, we're getting out of here, so that it's not abrupt. Now, I have to say, the way you've written this, I want more from you. I would actually urge you to write another line, even though you maybe feel you've said everything there is to say, I feel you need another sentence to give it that finalness that finality that is a little bit lacking here. Hmm. So that would be one solution to the problem. Whatever you think, or if it means breaking up what you've got into smaller sentences, I'm, I'm, I'm just hearing, I think a lot like a musician, right? I'm hearing the rhythm, and I want to fit the content into the rhythm of the music. And, and I want it to just have one more beat before it ends. So can we, can we try that? Do you think you have something to say, or one more week, or do we let you think on that for the next year? <laughs> exactly. See you next third coast. Uh, it takes I'll, time. I'll try. I'll just, just try sometimes something. there's like long sitting stretches at I'll this just, moment, I'll right? I'll just try something. Sure. So um, now, now she says it seems to be much, much better. Now you can walk into a store and you can get a nice smile. Pause. Still. Some people in Corbin say their town has a long way to go before it can put its image to rest, this image as a town, uh, as a white man's town. But in order to get there, um, people in town may have to do something they're still reluctant to do, and that is to do some straight talk about the past. For NPR News, I'm John Beeland. Bravissimo. <laughs> Hi there, just parking in to let you know we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with the rest of this session. You're listening to Chicago's Progressive Radio Adventures. This American life, I might like to The show about all the unseen 
Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abunran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, Resound. Resound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. Sorry to keep brushing this along. Colette, come on up. Uh, Jane, head back over. Do you want to sit or stand? Sit. Sit. Okay, um, we're now going to change gears uh, quite a bit. Uh, this, this session has been sadly very North American focused, even though we're at the Third Coast International Audio Festival. And Colette Kinsella, am I saying, can you tell me your last name? Kinsella. Kinsella is going to break us out of that. Uh, Colette is, makes documentaries, features, and reports for Ireland's uh, premier uh, public broadcaster, RTE Radio 1. She spent time working as a food hygiene trainer and yep. translator. Nice. There's a lot in here. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, the piece... I haven't read this for a year or so. Um, what Colette brought us, uh, she can tell in her own words, but it's, uh, it's a piece without tape, which is something also that a lot of us uh, are doing. Um, and so it's even more about tracking. And, and Colette, tell me how you, you don't even say tracking. What was that? We, voiceovers or voiceovers. links or whatever. Voiceovers or links. Um, the thing about Irish radio is when we do, when I do the type of packages or the, the five minute packages for my business show that I'm working at the moment, we don't have a huge amount of links or tracking. It's, we let the tape kind of tell the story. And we also allow whoever is in, whoever doing the interview, we leave some of their questions in as well. So that provides an, an instrument for pacing. So, the reason I brought this along was because I thought it would be more better for me, actually. And this is um, a piece that I did last year from Egypt, from Cairo, and um, it's for a program called World Report. And it's the program gives 
reporters the opportunity to report on kind of off news stuff. So it's like a first person account of something that wouldn't normally end up on the news. So it's a little bit of colour once a week, half an hour, Saturday mornings. And it's usually script only. There's no actualities, no background stuff. So, there's And no it's unusual. Like this, this is not the type of thing that I would do. So it's, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to actually get some instruction. Because I normally do this in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. Well, um, I don't know. I haven't read this at all. So that's a little tough to, to you sure. know. And, and we haven't hung out. Exactly. We can do that later. Yeah, um, <laughs> but normally just to get started and just to get loosened up, I'd have you read yeah. the whole first page. Okay. Yeah, just so I can get a feel for it. Sure. Okay. A couple of weeks ago, I wandered into a narrow side street in a densely populated working class area of Cairo. I came across a neighborhood party, the preparations for a wedding. The happy couple was being outfitted for their life together. Cotton filled mattresses were being sewn into shape, furniture was being upholstered, and the young bride was performing a beautiful oriental dance in the midst of this joyful blur. The girl looked happy, and she's probably one of the few people in Egypt who has much to be happy about at the moment. Egyptians have been hit hard by the economic downturn, with fuel and food prices rocketing, with fuel and food prices skyrocketing, people are finding it hard to pay their bills and feed their families, and many young people don't have the money they need to get married. Life here is hard, and the appearance of swine flu has made it even harder. When swine flu appeared on the world stage this year, the Egyptian government took a drastic step to prevent the virus reaching Egypt to prevent the virus reaching Egypt. In April, every pig in the country was killed. Okay, um, we can keep going normally, but um, I'm gonna just stop you here, you're doing great. That was really nice. Um, I think this is a good example, like of a little bit of the the, the sing-songy thing that we were talking about. So I would would just ask you to do it a little flatter, a little more tossed off. Okay. Okay, so we can just loosen up and be cash. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry about hitting any words. Okay. Just give it to me straight. Okay. Okay. A couple of weeks ago, I wandered into a narrow side street in a densely populated working class area of Cairo. Slow down just a little bit. That's, yeah, okay. A couple of weeks ago, I wandered into a narrow side street in a densely populated working class area of Cairo. I came across a neighborhood party, the preparations for a wedding. The happy couple was being outfitted for their life together. Cotton-filled mattresses were being sewn into shape, furniture was being upholstered, and the young bride was performing a beautiful oriental dance in the midst of this joyful blur. The girl looked happy, and she's probably one of the few people in Egypt who has much to be happy about at the moment. Egyptians have been hit hard by the economic downturn. With fuel and food prices skyrocketing, people are finding it hard to pay their bills and feed their families. And many young people don't have the money they need to get married. Life here is hard, and the appearance of swine flu has made it even harder. Okay, great. Um, That was really nice. Did you guys, could you hear the difference? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's a question. I actually really liked the first one, and I feel like maybe you guys can talk about the different styles of tracking, because This American Life has a very specific tracking style. Mm -hmm. I I mean, the way that um, the the reporter was tracking before, it sounds much more like when you tune into the BBC and it's much more animated. And it actually like draws you in in a different way than in This American Life Story draws you in. Interesting point. The, the comment was, I don't know, was more that um, she preferred the first take because it sounds more like what you 
are used to hearing. It draws her in more than the than I guess the style that you'd hear on um, This American Life. So um, I guess it's just a matter of taste. <laughs> I don't know. I I I yeah. I don't know what to say about that really. I mean. It's totally a matter of taste, I think. For me, for me, I feel like that there is, that your first version did sound to me more similar to the BBC. I kept on expecting that we were going into a story about the economy uh, and yeah. that we were going to hear a tape about it. And I, and I didn't realize that we would hear a personal narrative story that would be going somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, when I hear, I also think there's the, there's the kind of the pacing of where there's the full stop at every sentence. And then when you put a little character on it, it feels a little performed. Like, and she doesn't really know. You know, it, hmm. To me, it doesn't really feel like you're a person who's telling me a personal story that's happening to you or that you're observing. It feels a little written and it feels a little reported. And so I can understand if that's... I find it a little surprising that you would prefer the first one because for me, I feel like that's, I, I actually do zone out a little bit. I feel like I know what this story is and I know what it's gonna be and I assume it's gonna be more of a news kind of story. And so I probably wouldn't, I, I, actually, and even on your first take, I actually missed what the story, I didn't actually, I wasn't, I didn't totally hear what the story is about. And it was the second version when you read it of where I understood more of what was happening. Right. So. Yeah. Maybe that was because I heard it twice. But <laughs> well, I think also when you when you read the way you hear everyone on, like to add to what Julie just said, if you if the person's voice sounds really similar to everyone mm. else's voice, it is easy to turn tune it out. You know. Yeah, it, but I tend to get I kind of talk like that anyway. I tend to get really excited about stories, and then my voice does go up and down, and I'm doing this with my hands and kind yeah. of, and I talk very fast when I get excited about a story. So I have to consciously slow myself down. But the inflections, I would actually normally kind of work into normal conversation anyway. So mm-hmm. it's like that kind of give and take that. And of course, I you know, it sounds different to an extra pair of ears, which is right. very, very helpful. Right. Normally, it's just me listening on my, on my headphones. I think, I mean, you probably have all noticed <laughs> uh, flattening people out is something we do a lot on the, on the show. I think because... If, you, if this wasn't written down and you were just talking to mm. me, you would make, I know that you would make different choices for mm. the words that you're emphasizing yeah. here. Um, and you probably didn't notice it reading through, but there were some words that were being hit that aren't natural and right. wouldn't have, if you weren't writing it down, if you were just talking to me. So what I'm trying to do is like yeah. talk that, or, you know, work that out yeah. of the script. Do we, should we go for more or do more questions? Do you think, how much time do we have? No, no, go ahead. Answer the um, I have a question about word choice because I definitely feel like in, in this piece, for example, there's a lot of words that I would that I think of as like print words mm-hmm. that like wor- like working class neighborhood, for example. I guess it's a phrase, but like to me, that's not necessarily a phrase that I would use perhaps in common speech. Mm-hmm. I might say like I walk through an alley with broken down houses, or you know, I walk down an alley past like piles of garbage or whatever like details would signal that it was a working class neighborhood yeah and I, and I feel like what I heard was when you hit those places your your speech formalized a lot and your tone formalized a lot and so there was like this push-pull between um, like the phrases that allowed you to sound like you were just having a conversation and the phrases that forced you to go back into that pattern of reading so if you guys have anything to say about that I would definitely be curious for you to touch on that <coughs> 
Well, I think that's a lot of times stuff you work out before we go into the studio, you know, for our one and a half hours or whatever we've got booked. And there's some of that that you can do in the studio, but I think that's what makes Dean's way of um, <laughs> directing really, really effective is that you can handle that kind of right on the spot a lot, you know, a lot more efficiently <laughs> by having someone not look. Um, do you have recommendations for if you don't have a second pair of ears and you are very used to when you get down in front of a microphone just like shifting into mm. that reporter voice, that cadence, almost without your consciously realizing it, how to eject yourself from that, like exercises or just something to keep in no, this Do came I? Up yesterday, we, and, we, and you guys may have ideas, but someone also even suggested, what if you called a friend? And it had like a, a good. Who, who would you tell? You know, you just came back from uh, Cairo. Who would you call to tell about the experience? And could you just, you know, edit your piece with your editor, and then literally say, call up your friend and say, I'm just going to tell you about this. Could you have your friend on the phone while you're right. talking? Right. What yeah. usually happens is people say, imagine you're telling the story to a friend instead of you actually did it at the moment of recording right. your piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another suggestion. I mean, we never really do that. There's a few like a couple of contributors that record themselves with no one listening. Um, but usually where there's somebody there. But I would say it would also be helpful to listen to a piece by someone who you like the way that they read, too, and have that in your head. Just the same way you would if you wanted to mimic someone's writing style, which is fine. <laughs> um, I think if you listen to a piece where you really liked the way someone read, you know, that helps. Um, yeah. I find it helpful to listen to myself. Like if you record yourself and you listen back to yourself, you'll hear what doesn't sound natural, and you can correct yourself. And if, you know, a few takes later, you'll probably be comfortable. She said, uh, "Listen to herself," which also came up. Celeste Wesson brought that up yesterday a lot. Is uh, to how much you might hate listening to yourself initially, but get mm -hmm. used to it, and mm -hmm. then figure out what of yourself do you like, mm -hmm. and can you live with? And she said, "Wait a week to listen." We have a week. I, just a question about the style, as related to the style of your show, I mean, you're really curious <coughs> to hear what it would be like if Dean were trapped in the same I, I was thinking, do you, know, do you want to do a paragraph of that? We can do that. Let's, let's, let's yeah. think about that. Um, there was a question over here. Yeah. Yeah, this question is for Dean, and forgive me if it was answered earlier, but um, when you know that you have to get a piece to time, how do you deal with doing, I love the idea of doing your method. I think it, it ends up with great tracks, but how do you then you end up with extra sentences and extra pauses, and what happens then when you're trying to get a piece of time? Right. I mean, it's a constantly fluid process. Production becomes part of this, you know, and if we've made choices in the tracking that means the piece is too long or too short, I mean, again, I had the luxury that a lot of you won't have in that I was able to adjust. Mm -hmm. So some things may not apply on a daily deadline show. A lot of them might not apply, but anything that you can take from it by all means. So but you it, just change, you know, you might take out something that was originally slated to be in an actuality. Well, I mean, for one thing, the, when you're going through a piece like this and you're really listening to it, you realize just how much fat is in a piece, right? I often made a piece much shorter going through things this way. It's like, oh God, this tape is just not cutting it. You know, get rid of it, you know? So, because we're often just going too quickly through the making of our piece, we don't realize how much more can be done to make it just really streamlined. Jane, how often are you tracking a piece without tape? Oh, um, probably every show. Uh -huh. <laughs> we uh -huh. have, we, well, maybe every other show. Somebody pretty has, often. Yeah, yeah, pretty often. Yeah. Do you prefer it that way or what? No, it just, just depends on the mix of stories. Yeah. You know, like we'll have a, we'll, we'll have a written piece without tape every few shows. So it's, it's a lot. Yeah. And yeah. for you, does it, 
do you feel like it puts more burden on I mean on you or no <laughs> I feel like I treat them the, try to treat it the same as I would a reported piece but again like I said I don't play the tape when I do I mean usually because we've heard it so many times in edits so everybody's pretty familiar with what the tape is unlike this situation right here but um, no I try to treat that treat it treat it the same yeah yeah do you ever have people edit their own tracks like get that in the studio and produce it themselves rarely but we do that's what we do <laughs> that's what, exactly what we do we produce all our own stuff uh-huh it happens sometimes. I don't know. Um, no. Most of the people that, that we work with don't know how to use Pro Tools, yeah. so that's why we do it. But if, if, yeah. If someone's a producer and, like, yeah, comes to us with a piece, yeah. Um, well, I guess one of the things that Colette brought up was that uh, her voice, you know, goes up and down. And so, Dean, what would you do with that? I mean, I feel a little bit like you have an unfair advantage because, you know, Irish is such a musical dialect, you know, and <laughs> I'm so... I'm sing-songy anyway. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would probably do the opposite. I would not want to flatten you out. I would also not want it to become... There's a difference between, you know, the, the natural uh, pitches of, uh, of your dialect and um, in pitch patterns. Mm. So what really is essential is... Breaking out the pitch pattern is like a predetermined da 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 that people fall into, and instead you do want to have those highs and lows. In my view, I don't want to flatten you. I just want to make sure that they correspond to the actual units of meaning in your sentence, right? So that those pitches are actually serving the meaning of what you're saying to reattach you to the words and what they are standing for, rather than just. Pretty sounds. I find telling people to do it flatter doesn't always actually flatten them out, but it's a direction that I don't know how it somehow it's something people can understand, but they don't always go completely monotone and flat. No one's reading like that. I'm, you know, I'm hoping they're not going to do that, but it's just it's an easy word. Like same thing with toss it off. Like we have kind of like standard phrases <laughs> that get to our goals, but maybe you know hopefully don't actually make you sound totally monotone. Are there other phrases that people should take home, toss it off, be flat, like that you think that you use a lot? Just one that I use all the time, I learned from Starly Kind. She was directing Jonathan Goldstein one time, and she said, and she knew him really well, so she said, 25% more Jonathan. <laughs> and I do that all the time. I'll be like, 10% less Colette, 50% more Colette right here. That seems to work. I don't know. It's the same thing with like, have a little more fun. Can you be more sarcastic here? Or, um, and, you know, we try to do takes, all different sorts of takes so that we have options. So I, I would always like a very flat take and then I would like one where you're really enthusiastic and stuff. And so I can even cut between sentences when we're doing the mix. It's interesting. I find actually, it's it. I never tell someone they're getting sing-songy. I, mm-hmm. I I find if you point it out, you're just gonna get it more. It's, and and you know when you track, it's it's nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. You don't understand what it is that they're looking for. You feel frustrated. Um, so I think when you're tracking, when you're directing somebody, being staying positive yeah. with them the whole time and giving them positive feedback them. and lying. I lie all the time. <laughs> Keep in mind if I ever direct you. But I, I mean, I say that all the time. Amazing. Yeah, that was great. That was, great. was always perfect. beautiful. Perfect. We're just and then also I say, you were doing this thing earlier. 
And you, you've kind of moved off of it, and let's just go back to it, because you were doing it earlier. That's a lie. You were not doing it earlier. But, like, giving everybody confidence, like, feeling like, I can do this. I'm not going to just, like, like melt down into tears and be like, I don't know what you want. But, like, saying, like, you can do it, and you have it, and you can keep on going. So, so I feel like the thing to stay away from is just usually, like, negative words, you know? Um, and, and, and just, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not as honest as Julia is about lying. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> there are a couple more questions back here. Yeah. You. That one? Yeah. Oh. With the beard. Uh, sorry, I'm blind. I can't no, no, actually with the beard. You're, you, we'll come oh. back to you, but first. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder um, if you can talk about the sort of balance between in trying to take down the newsiness uh, but maintaining intimacy. I find like a danger is going soft or um, losing energy. Um, so how do you... How do you maintain, how do you keep your power and your intimacy? Whenever I have a the question, question like that, the question is about oh, sorry. how do you maintain in a news environment the intimacy and authority, I think, is sort of the other aspect of that. That's why I love Danny's wordling so much. You know, when I'm thinking about these things, I copy other people, right? He, he's a genius at that, right? He can talk about serious, horrible news stories and still be himself in an authentic way and have authority. So if I'm feeling stuck, I just like get his voice in my head, and I try to channel him as much as I can. Colette, how do you deal with that? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I do try to imagine I'm telling somebody the story, and like this type of piece is is quite unusual for me. And normally, when I'm doing my my features documentaries, I change stuff all the time. Like like the other the other guy there, um, change it to more chatty. Like, on paper, it sounds great, but then when you say it, you realize, no, that just sounds red, and I just do it on the hoof. And because I mix all my own stuff and all my actualities and everything, I have the luxury of actually changing the whole thing if I need to, or changing sections of it. So it's, it's really, I do try to imagine I'm, t I'm telling somebody. And it's hard when it's just you in your kitchen, mm -hmm. you know, or in the, the bowels of RT or something in an empty <laughs> studio. So, yeah, it's just, that's what I try to keep to do. And when you change, because it came up, what happens in terms of like editing, edi editorial response? Do people care? If you're changing a script on your own because you think, oh, that didn't sound... That's not a problem. Usually, if I'm doing my pieces for... Well, the features and documentaries, if it changes, it doesn't really matter anyway, you know, unless the whole story changes. It's, it's a non-issue. If I'm doing my business pieces, I'll have a chat with the... Um, as long as the, 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 the shape of the piece is similar and I'm not completely changing direction, it doesn't matter. They want a piece that sounds natural at the end of the day, and however I do that, they really don't mind. Mm. So, is there any last question? Yeah, you, sorry, you. Uh, a question about, you know, you, I think Julie, you had said, you know, you'll take a sentence from one track and a sentence from another track, and for some reason, I have no problem cutting up acts and doing that. But when it's my own voice, I feel like it just sounds totally disjointed. You know, I want to take a whole track just because I feel it sounds, uh, one, you know, it sounds coherent. Here's the trick: take. Make your cuts in the middle of a, of a word. If you, if you make your cut at the end of a sentence, you'll hear the contrast in tone much more dramatically than if you cut on an interior word in the sentence. It'll, it'll mask the change. You even cut on a syllable. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah like on a hard, on a hard I, D I or something. I always cutting on a plosive syllable of a word, so sometimes it's an interior word, part of a word. We have one last question. Yes. Well, yeah, maybe. I just would be interested in hearing an experiment, like if uh, Colette read her piece without reading it, if she just tried to tell it almost the way John... We're out of time, but let's, Colette, do you want to do your first paragraph? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Well, to him. A couple of weeks ago, I wandered into a side street in Cairo. It was a really densely populated area of Cairo. And I came across a neighborhood party. It was the preparations for a wedding. And the happy couple was being outfitted for their life together. Their furniture is being upholstered. Um, their mattresses were being sewn and the bride was dancing this incredibly joyful dance in the midst of all this blur. I like that. <laughs> that is quite different. That is quite different. And that's a great technique. I had never thought of doing that before. <laughs> Changed my life. <laughs> so please join me in thanking Jesse and John and Colette and Jane and Dean. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.